Welcome to Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, HispanicMPR.com. This is Elena DelVal, and my guest today is Beth Blatt, who is founder and chief executive officer of Hope Sings, a for-profit music organization striving to help women around the world out of poverty by supporting microfinance. Today we will discuss microfinance and her organization. Beth has a broad range of creative and corporate experience in the U.S., Asia, Europe, and Latin America. She is an award-winning theater writer and has also written for television, radio, newspaper, and magazines. She produced television for TV Tokyo and worked in account management at Ogilvy & Mather in New York Advertising. As an actress, she appeared on stages and screens internationally, including in the film Godzilla vs. Biolante. She is a graduate of Dartmouth College. Beth, welcome. Thank you, Elena. Did I say that right? Godzilla versus Biolante. Okay. <laughs> I was not familiar with that particular title. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure it was one of the most popular in the Godzilla franchise. Actually, they say Gojira. But, um, yeah, I played the newscaster. It was uh, pretty interesting. How fun. It was fun, actually. You'll have to tell me about that later. <laughs> okay. <laughs> let's talk a little bit, if you would. Let's start from the beginning. According to Wikipedia, microfinancing is pr the provision of financial services to low-income clients, including those who are self-employed and those who traditionally lack access to banking and related services. Now, what does that mean in practical terms? Can you help us get our arms around that? Yeah, what it means is that it's a whole range of services that go to people that normally don't have access to them, including access to loans, um, access to savings, access to insurance, um, you know, pretty much a lot of the, the poor people in the world who don't have the access that we would have to those things. Um, the way microfinance is most often thought of in the United States is currently microloans, the very small loans that go to individuals who want to start a business. But I think that Wikipedia, you know, definition is, is pretty comprehensive. What is the difference between microfinance and a microloan? A microloan is a is a kind of microfinance. Okay, it's it's a subset of microfinance, if you will. Um, the find because all the financial tools could include giving people access to savings accounts, giving people access to insurance. Um, sometimes it's even considered access to healthcare. Um, so f the microfinance is a big umbrella term for all those different kinds of tools. And, of course, there are many people, even in the United States, I think some of our listeners may be shocked to find out how many people in our own country are unbanked, meaning that they do not rely on the services of banks, but they keep their money in cash and live in an unbanked way. Absolutely. And as a matter of fact, my microfinance has started in the U.S. Um, Grameen opened a branch of um, one of their micro-lending offices in Queens here last, in 2009, I believe. And Acción, which is one of the large international um, microfinance organizations, also is very active in the U.S., Acción USA. Would you share with us some statistics in terms of 
the number of people that is relying on microfinance or maybe even the number of people that are estimated as potential candidates for microfinance? Yeah, it's it's fairly huge numbers, actually. Um, according to CGAP, which is one of the large organizations that monitors microfinance, it's called Consultative Group to Assist the Poor. Um, they estimate that there are currently 100 million customers of microfinance, and but there are a potential of 1.5 billion customers. So even though a lot of people are currently being served, there's still a big gap. Um, they estimate that there are also about 7,000 microfinance institutions taking care of those people, um, making those loans. Um, and they say that the total cash turnover involved, there, there are huge ranges. You will find that different, different um, organizations give different figures, but as much as $6.1 billion as of 2009 was estimated investing in microfinance. Do you have a breakdown of the microfinance population, say, by geographic location? You know, I don't have that offhand. Um, it is, you know, it tends to be in the developing countries, of course. Um, it's, you know, in terms of how it breaks down by the world, I don't have that offhand. I can definitely find that and make that available to your um, readers and listeners um, online. That would be great. I think that it would be enlightening to a lot of us to know what kinds of numbers we're talking about in the different parts of the world. And sure. since I know that you're going to be focusing your efforts outside the U.S., of course, that, that might be interesting to you as well. In terms of the United States, do you have any further insights in terms of the role of microfinance and microfinance organizations? Um, I know that it's it's fairly recent and growing. Um, we're not currently focus, focusing on what um, microfinance organizations are doing in the U.S. Our first effort is more concentrated on Latin America um, and and um, so I'm a little bit less conversant in, in the U.S. Um, but I know that it is definitely growing. In terms of the actual definition, let's go back to that for a minute, if, if you would. Um, when we look at the definition of low-income clients, that, of course, is a matter of perspective depending on who is defining low-income and what part of the world, if we're talking about a developed or a developing country, etc. Mm. Would you help us with that a little bit? How do you, how do these organizations define a low-income client or someone who is a candidate for microfinance? Well, I think that it depends on the country and it depends on, on their situation. I don't think, um, I think it's more a situation where they, and we are not a microfinance organization ourselves, by the way. We are supporting the microfinance organizations, so we don't give any loans. Um, we just want to make people aware of how much good the loans do do in the world. Um, but, you know, uh, they say that about 1.3 billion people in the world live on less than $1 a day. Um, and, you know, s these are some of the people that are clients for microfinance. Um, I think it's a question of, you know, the way the microfinance loans generally work is you get a small group of people 
in a village, for instance, who don't have any, any collateral, and they function as collateral to each other. So if there's a group of 10 people, um, if woman, it's often women, if woman number nine doesn't pay, or woman doesn't 10 doesn't pay, then women one through nine have to step up and pay for her loan. Um, a lot of it is on trust. A lot of it is on, um, on, very, on a very local level in terms of the, of the lending. So, um, so it's hard to say exactly what the criteria are, but I, because I think it really varies tremendously by, from market to market. Um, so it's, but it's people who don't have a whole lot, but, but they, but they, it's given on trust and on um, mutual support. What type of numbers are we talking about in terms of the loans themselves, for example, and uh, maybe we can talk a little bit about the other services that you mentioned. But if we're looking at the actual micro loans, for example, what are the what what is the range of loan amounts? Do you have any idea? Yeah, um, I do actually. I know that you know when I was looking at Latin America, some of the smallest loans are um, you know start at a hundred dollars. Uh, one of the stories that I was familiar with, a woman named Doña Blanca, who lived outside of Guatemala City, her first loan amount was 99 quetzales, which is $100. And with that $100, she bought an oven um, and baked bread and proceeded to pay that loan back and get more loans. I know that Kiva, who is one of my microfinance um, organizations that I'm partnering with, their average loan size is $392. Um, I know that loans in... The Middle East, for instance, um, and they also have them in Eastern Europe, um, are much higher loan values than they are in Latin America or Asia or Africa. Those loans tend to be the smallest loans. In areas where the infrastructure is limited, like some of the ones that you just mentioned, Latin America and Asia and Africa, Mm -hmm. how does the microfinance scenario look? Is it mostly loans or do they really need to start at a more basic level? And if so, what is that? I think most of it is still loans. I think what's happening is there's other um, other things that are coming on top of it. For instance, Promujer, which is a microfinance organization that um, focuses on Latin America. I believe they're in seven countries in Latin America. They tie in um, women's physical health with the loans. So in order to obtain a loan, you have to get a pap smear, for instance. It's required. Um, certain other programs require that you undergo um, financial literacy training. Certain people tie it in with savings, requiring a certain amount of savings be held. Um, some organizations, I know that um, Women's World Banking just received a grant from, in this year in 2010, from the Gates Foundation to do a telenovela, which is actually a soap opera that, um, that talks about micro savings, um, encouraging that. Um, so it's a whole range of things that they do, but I think the loan is still the basis of it, um, of the microfinance work. You mentioned a moment ago, Beth, that most of these programs are for women or that it's women that take advantage of these programs mostly. How is that? Why is that? Well, you know, they estimate that of the poorest of the poor in the world, between 70 and 75% of those people are women. And the women are the ones with the least access to 
credit from regular financial institutions. Um, they are the ones that are getting the microloans. Some figures put it as up to 85% of microloans go to women. Um, they are the most underserved, and they are the ones that are taking the most advantage of it. And I will say that they are doing a fabulous job because the repayment low rate, even given the recent financial crisis, is still around 98% of these loans are repaid in full on time. And you just jumped ahead to my next question. That was exactly <laughs> what I was going to ask you. And so the, the, the programs are, in effect, proving their success because you're seeing a very high repayment ratio. They are indeed. You know, they're not. There's been a, a bit of backlash recently against microfinance because I think people were so excited at the possibility of it, particularly in the wake of Kiva, which is an organization that popularized the microloans online by making it a very ready channel that, for instance, you, Elena, could go to the, the Kiva.org website and pick a person, an individual that you wanted to support, whether it's to become an Avon lady or to buy an oven. Um, and you will loan that person directly, and you will be paid back by that person. Um, that made it very, very popular. Um, there's been a bit of a backlash against microfinance recently because people were thinking it was the panacea, that with these very small loans, with this empowering of women as part of the Millennium Goals, that this was going to fix it all. Um, and actually, it's one of a number of tools that, that are being accessed to, to help the world's poor. You know, there's a lot of focus also being placed on helping the small and medium enterprises, the SMEs. Um, there's an organization called the Acumen Fund, which is working on um, working with micro enterprises. Um, there's a fear that microfinance is not scalable, as they say, that the, that the costs are very high because it's high touch to be loaning to these individuals, to look into these individual cases, um, which keeps the costs high. Um, so there's been a bit of a backlash, but I think that that doesn't undercut still the power of it, um, especially on a one-to-one -one basis. The stories are very powerful, and I think often it's the stories that motivate people to become involved and to step up and to start to help. You said that the repayment rate, 98%, was very high, and of course I think anybody would agree that is fabulous return rate. Are these loans truly impacting people's lives? Are they making a difference? Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, there have been lots of qualitative and quantitative studies to show how the access to financial services has improved the status of women. There was a whole, um, my, um, a whole issue of the New York Times Magazine, actually, that focused on empowering women and talked about cases, particularly one in the Middle East comes to mind, where the woman had been a victim of abuse, quite a bit of abuse from her husband, um, part of it stemming from the fact that she only had daughters. Um, but the minute she started building a profitable business, all of a sudden her husband became um, not only dependent upon her, but proud of her, in fact. Um, it's really helped solidify relationships. There's lots of anecdotal um, information about how it's changed the dynamic um, in marriages. Um, and there have been there have been declines of um, there have been reports of declining levels of violence against women. Um, and for instance, in El Salvador, um, just to, to give you a, a, a figure, um, according to Finca, which is one of my microfinance institutions, they say that um, clients' income has increased on average by 145% um, after receiving microloans. 
how is it that you, a person that's in a totally different area, if you will, of work, which is not necessarily financial in its orientation, but perhaps more entertainment related, take into account Godzilla in particular. <laughs> How is it that you have chosen this new path that you have founded Hope Sings and are embarking on a path to help these people with microfinance? How did that happen? Well, I was sitting on a beach in the Baja and I was looking at my life. And it consisted of writing musicals and spending a lot of time with my words. I write book and lyrics for musicals. And I just, I just had this sense that I wanted to be up to something more in the world than that. I've lived a very international life. As you can tell, I lived in Tokyo. I lived in Hong Kong. I've lived in Europe. And, and musicals are very provincial. And they have a place in the world. They can be incredibly inspiring and fun and entertainment. But I wanted to be up to something more in the world. And I didn't know what that meant. And... As luck would have it, the next week I went to a dinner party and my friends were talking about Kiva, to whom I've referred earlier in this conversation. And they were talking about loaning these women money and how with a very small amount of money they were helping these women change their lives. And I'm like, wow, that is an amazing story. And as a songwriter, whenever I hear amazing story, I instantly think amazing song. And I thought, wouldn't it be amazing to tell these stories in song? And that's sort of how it began. And it was, it's just been kind of an interesting series of um, cards falling over for me not too long after. Um, um, and there was an entire issue of the New York Times magazine that was about microfinance. Um, and as luck would have it, there um, was a big article about Finca, who's now one of my microfinance partners. And I Googled Finca. And um, the two founders went to my college. So I picked up my college and got a phone number, and I called one of the two founders of Kiva, and I actually got him on the phone early in the morning and um, was not totally prepared for that. <laughs> but um, he was really interested in the whole notion of what I wanted to do, which was tell these inspiring stories in song to raise awareness of what microfinance does. So with that, I went off to Panama. I was going on a trip anyway. I reached out to Ruben Blades. His wife was, um, is a friend of a friend of mine. And uh, through Ruben, I hooked up with an amazing Panamanian composer. And he and I wrote the first demo song for the project, which was based on the story of this woman in Blanca, Doña Blanca, um, in Barasanas, outside of Guatemala City, to whom I referred earlier. And, um, and then with that song in hand... Um, it started to take shape, and it's been a process. You know, we are now in um, October of 2010. I've been incorporated for a little bit less than a year, actually a year and seven days. Um, so that's, that's where it all began. Well, congratulations on reaching your first year. Thank you. I should have some birthday candles somewhere. There you go. Why... Start with Latin America. Do you have a particular tie, or was that just the door that opened? How, how did you make that decision? That's a really great way to phrase it, the door that opened. It was, it was a very instinctual choice. In Mexico, when the idea first came to me, um, I think that there's – I've spent a lot of time in Europe, um, which um, I happened to go to Prague right after I went to Panama, um, when I recorded that demo song in 2009. 
And um, it felt cold. It felt unemotional. It didn't feel full of possibility. Latin America felt full of possibility to me. It also offered a huge range of music that I think to many people in America is unknown. A huge opportunity to introduce to these people um, music from Mexico, Argentina, um, Nicaragua, Andes music. Because with Hope Sings, we're reaching out to two different constituencies. We're reaching out both to Hispanics and to people who are not Hispanic, people who want to know more about it, people who already support microfinance, who are philanthropists but know nothing about it. Um, and also a third reason was, frankly, like everybody pays attention to Africa, you know, and nobody pays enough attention to Latin America, it feels like, in the U.S. It's a little bit of NIMBY, maybe, not in my backyard. Um, it's a little too close to home. Um, and um, I think it deserved more attention. It was more interesting. Now, Hope Sings has two sides, if I understand correctly. One is to develop this music and work with performers to raise money and awareness for the microfinance, and then those monies go to the microfinance organizations. Is that right? Yes. And then there's another side that is equally important, right? Yes. Which Why side you- is that? <laughs> Well, at the same time that you are raising monies for microfinance, you're also working with artists. Oh, yeah. You mean, okay, that's what I thought you might be referring to, but I wanted to be sure before I leaped into that. Um, My point of view is that there are women that need to be supported all over. And what what Hope Sings is doing is helping both female entrepreneurs in developing countries and helping female entrepreneurs who are musical artists. Um, And we're using those female artists to help raise awareness of the female entrepreneurs in developing countries. Um, I was appalled, frankly, when I went to the Billboard Awards um, in Miami in 2009 um, at how few female um, Latina artists there are. they're underrepresented, you know, in music in America as well, but particularly in the Latin market, um, it just didn't seem like to me like there were enough of them, and it didn't seem like there were maybe enough of them that were up to something to me um, of substance with their music. Um, there was a, a panel I remember, and um, those panels had a couple hundred people in attendance, but there was a panel about um, women songwriters, and there were perhaps 30 people in the audience. And unilaterally, um, somebody would get up and make a a question, um, pose a question to one of the women on the panel, and it always began with, it's such a a pleasure to be in the presence of someone so beautiful, which is lovely. I mean, it's nice to be pretty, but it wasn't about that. It was about women and songwriting. Um, And and from my point of view, um, I want music to be up to something. I think that the the power of popular song has been forgotten. I think people like Ruben Blades, who you know wrote the Salsa Consciente, which is all about using the power of song to to make change in the world. Mercedes Sosa, um, people like that. I think um, few and far between um, these days. Um, Bruce Springsteen used to do it a bit, but not so much anymore. So I would like to encourage um, songwriters, particularly women songwriters, to take on something big with their music. Um, and to help them get up um, different and bigger audiences. So we're working with established artists um, 
who want to perhaps do something different with their music that they're not allowed to by their normal fan base, who want to collaborate with somebody they wouldn't ordinarily get a chance to collaborate with, um, to reach out to a different market. If they're big in the Latin market, maybe they're not so big. Maybe they want to cross over a bit. And to work with emerging artists to help them get that first break. Um, so that's, yes, that's our double mission. And just to be clear for our listeners, even though your goal in both parts of the mission is a fundraising and raising of awareness mission, the organization itself is not a nonprofit. It sounds like a double negative. <laughs> Which sounds confusing. Why don't I let you explain it? Well, what, what we are is what, what's called a for-benefit social enterprise. Um, what's happening in the landscape of the world now is something that's, that's kind of new and very exciting, I think. Um, and I think part of it has to do with the wake of the financial crisis, actually. I think people took a step back. A lot of people lost work. Um, and a lot of people, you know, were brought up short and said, what am I doing with my life? Um, and I need to put money on the table, but I want to do something that, I mean, put food on the table. But I also want to do something that's up to something bigger in the world. I like that phrase, obviously. Um, and what you're finding is a lot of people who are becoming involved in what's called social enterprise or, or doing good by doing good business. Um, and it's not, and it's a bit difficult, I think, for people to wrap their mind around because they think there's four, they're not-for-profits, which essentially just exist to do good in the world and they subsist on donations. Um, and then there's for-profit, which does no good. Um, they're just there to make money. And I think within those two circles, there's now a Venn diagram and there's a little bit of a, a piece there where there are companies that are trying to do both. Um, so we formed a, something called an L3C. Um, which is a for-benefit corporation, meaning our social mission comes first and financial sustainability comes second. Um, financial sustainability is important, I think, in this, particularly in this day and age. Many charities are really challenged to try and keep their donation levels up. And financial sustainability is super important. Um, and it, it's a parallel, I think, to microfinance. Because that's all it's about. It's not a, about a handout. It's about a hand up. I want Hope Sings to be a financially sustainable business that offers people value on every level, that offers music that people want, um, a discovery service that people want. Um, I want our profits to go to fund more loans. I want a significant part of our budget to go towards funding song production to support these emerging artists. Um, and that's the space that we're living in. But it's interesting. It's, you know, you and I had um, a bit of a conversation about this. People don't quite know what to make of that. So I feel like I'm a bit of a pioneer, actually, <laughs> in that respect. Which is a great thing. You're opening doors in multiple fronts. You're opening <laughs> doors with the organization itself. As yeah. a for-benefit, which you just defined for us. And I think for many of us, it's certainly the first time I hear that term, is a new concept. Yeah. And at the same time, you're opening doors with the two missions. Are the two missions on equal grounds or do they have the same importance within the organization or is there one that is more important than the other? It's very circular to me. 
it's very circular. It's really hand in hand um, because I don't think you can, um, based on what we are, you cannot um, generate the money for the loans without having the songs. Um, and you can't, um, you can't do one without the other. Um, it's very symbiotic to me. I mean, ultimately, our mission is to raise money to donate to the microfinance um, companies, um, but it's by supporting these microfinance, by, the, by supporting the artists as well. Um, it's hard to divorce the two. Let's talk a little bit more about the, the artists. Beth, if you would tell us, what is the profile of these artists? It's very interesting to hear you describe that there are fewer women performers, women artists uh, among Hispanic-oriented artists. Why do you think that is, and how will you go about finding more, if you will? Well, I think it's it's partially cultural. You know, um, I think that there's um, there's a certain machismo in the culture, perhaps, um, that that has women functioning in a certain role, um, which is okay. I think there's I think there's a place for being bouncy and fun and light and choppy pop. You know, um, there's a place for that. There's a place for just for happy music. Absolutely. Um, but for me, as I said, my mission is to make songs of substance. And they don't have to be dour. They don't have to be somber. They don't have to be weepy ballads by any means. In fact, I don't think I've really got any weepy ballads yet on my song list for the album. Um, but it is a challenge. You know, I have three pages worth of artists. I've been extremely comprehensive in, in figuring out who's the right fit for what we're doing. Um, I'm blessed by the fact that one of my first and major supporters has been BMI, which is one of the three major performing rights organizations. And I met with Porfirio Piña, who's the head of Latin music here in New York, um, fairly early on um, in the project. And he loved the idea. Within five minutes of my describing what I was up to, he's like, whatever you want to do, I will do. And he promptly took me down to Miami to the Billboard Awards um, in April of 2009 and introduced me to everybody. Took me to the green room and introduced me to everybody. Um, the writers, the performers, you name it. Um, and from there, it's been a process of figuring out who's got the right style, the right message, the right fit. I mean, this is to be somebody, we are not asking artists to donate. We're not making it a requirement that they donate their song. Some have chosen to, like Marta Gomez, who wrote our first song for us, chose to donate her royalties. Um, I'm making that an option. As I said, it's about sustainability. Artists need to make a living as well. And frankly, publishers and labels in this current financial um, situation are not really too eager to give up any income that they have at this point. Um, but so we're reaching out to um, all different kinds of, of writers and singers and songwriters. But as I said, I have a three-page single-space document of the female um, notable um, singer songwriters and just and just singers and I've gone through the list and I've listened to their catalog um, and I've narrowed myself down to at this point a list of about 25 songs that I feel really fits within our style um, and now I'm talking to the labels I'm talking to publishers I'm talking to the artists directly um, to see who wants to be a part of it to see who it works for 
Um, we also are, I've been reaching out to writers to write original songs. And this is where my heart truly is in the project, is um, inviting artists to write songs directly inspired by the true story of people and how their lives have been changed in huge ways by these small loans. Um, I wrote the first song like that with um, Romero Castro, who's a Panamanian composer who's written many big songs for Ruben Blades. Um, I have a singer-songwriter, two, two people now, um, writing original songs for me that are written for people like Talia, um, Cheyenne, Jennifer Lopez, um, Jenny Ribeira, people who have a big songwriting career are writing me two of these original songs that we will produce. Um, we're speaking with some of the people that have been on your podcasts, Artercio Pelado, so I'm speaking with Nacional about licensing some of their songs, um, speaking with um, you know, people from Lila Downs, who's a very well-known Mexican singer. We've got Marta's song, Marta Gomez, is a very well-known Colombian singer-songwriter who works very much in the world music fusion um, space. So it's fun. I, I'm aiming for, as I said, really to get a range of music from Mexico to the tip of Argentina and Chile, to get a whole range of music, but with a focus on the women. And by telling the stories of the success of the microloans, is that right? Well, my goal is to have, I've got a very small goal, which is to do the entire world with Hope Sings. So Latin America is our first region. Then from there, we'll go to the Middle East, Africa, Asia, and the U.S. Um, for Latin America, because we are a startup, um, we don't have the money to produce an album of all original songs. Um, so what, our, what we're doing with the first album is we're doing three to four original songs inspired by the microfinance stories, and we are licensing other existing songs, but they're all uplifting. They're all empowering and focused on women. What language is the music in? It's going to be primarily in Spanish. Um, there will be some English language songs. As I said, we're, we're, we've got one foot in each of both worlds. We've, we're, we're talking to both the Hispanic market and we're talking to the American market. Um, through my microfinance partners, um, we can reach up to 500,000 people um, with the message of Hope Sings. And most of those people are not Hispanic. Most of those people are, you know, middle American people who support microfinance. I want to introduce these people to new music, but I need to do it in a way that's, that's accessible enough to them. Um, we're going to have copious liner notes about the stories of each song, the stories of the singer, the story of the person that's being featured. And if, you know, we get a sponsor for a particular track, then the story of that sponsor as well. Um, so we're going to try to, you know, to make both constituencies happy, but the preponderance will be in Spanish. A couple in Portuguese, because Brazil is huge. We forget about Brazil, but Brazil is huge. How will you raise the funding? Is it from selling an album? How, how is that going to work? Well, so far we've been internally funded. Um, I'm currently doing what's called a Kickstarter campaign which is a fabulous thing. If um, your listeners are not aware, it's relatively new. I think it's only been around maybe since the middle of 2009. Don't quote me on that. But what it does is it helps artists fund their projects. Again, it's not a loan. You're not borrowing the money. What you're doing is offering value to fans of your project. 
for $5, they get a pre-release of several tracks. For $20, they get a pre-release of the whole album. For $50, they get a pre-release of the whole album plus credit on the liner notes. You have a whole range of rewards. Um, so we're currently doing a Kickstarter campaign to pay for the, the production of the original songs that we're doing. Um, we are getting a certain amount of donations from people, um, realizing that they're not tax deductible. Even so, they want to support what we're up to because what's very cool about what we're doing is um, people say, well, why, don't, why shouldn't we just fund loans? By all means, fund loans. That's what we're up to. We want to inspire people to do that. But what Hope Sings has is something I call the music multiplier effect, where if you fund a production of a Hope Sings song, you are hitting so many more ears than you would just by funding one loan that you have a massive ripple effect. Um, by supporting these songs. So once we get the album funded, then we're going to start getting the revenue that will start feeding the next sets of albums. We have a couple different models we're looking at. The one I'm happiest with at this point is either a subscription or membership model where people sign on for um, six months or a year and we deliver to them on a regular basis fabulous music, primarily from women artists, um, primarily of a of, a, of an empowering or uplifting or something of substance in terms of the song. So we're functioning as music discovery for people so that they can feel like they're getting something of value. So they're, they're you know, they call it, what is it, shopping with your pocketbook. They're, in, in effect, doing something and getting something good at the same time. Beth, you mentioned that many of your target audience in terms of the fundraising are English dominant, but also at the same time many of the songs are going to be in Spanish. Will you be providing an English translation in writing or in some form since these songs are designed to be uplifting and to tell stories? Is that part of your plan? Well, it's funny because that's one of my personal plans because actually from a very selfish basis, <laughs> one of the major things I wanted to do with Hope Sings was have a chance for me as a songwriter to be out there doing different kinds of work. Um, I've already spoken with Marta about doing an English language version of La Esperanza Canta, which is a theme song that she wrote and recorded for us. Um, what I would love is that for our original songs, that they exist in both English and Spanish, and that they have performances both in English and in Spanish. The songs that we control, that are our intellectual property, we can do in English and Spanish. We can have the sheet music available. I have a vision where there are both... Um, you know, English-speaking and, and Spanish-speaking performers on a very grassroots basis performing these songs as part of their set. They, if they love what Hope Sings does, if they want to support microfinance, they can do the Hope Sings song as part of their set in English or in Spanish and let people know what we are up to. Um, as, as many ambassadresses, if you will, for what we're doing and have the same thing function around the world. Um, what I think is very cool is how music is universal. Um, if you look at the Puto Mayo albums, which are very successful um, series of albums, which actually inspired me, they do albums, um, for instance, um, music from the coffee countries. And it's all music from, you know, where they grow the coffee in Nicaragua, Guatemala. Um, we don't understand these words, but they're liner notes. And the songs have a vibe that transport us. Um, I would like the songs to be transporting at least 
on a musical level so that even if people don't understand the words, they will connect with them on a musical level. But as you said, I want them to go the next level, which is where they get the real meaning of the words. So at a minimum, the liner notes will be in both languages. Um, and ultimately, I'd like the songs to be in both languages. What kind of a timeline do you have for this very modest worldwide <laughs> project? You know, I, I, I wonder why. I was having a very nice, calm life, writing my musicals, you know, getting up in the morning and writing all day. And I, um, I have incredibly tight time frames for myself. For instance, this was an example. Um, in 2009, um, after I met Porfirio, we decided we needed a theme song. Um, and we put out an APB for a theme song and got many submissions. And the one we liked the best was from Marta. Um, and within 48 hours, she'd written the theme song. Um, and within a week, we were in the studio recording it because she was only going to be in town for one day within two months. And I had set myself a goal that I wanted to be in Las Vegas with some sort of presence at the Latin Grammy Awards, which was less than two months after that. So we actually produced our first song within a week um, and had our first public debut within two months. Um, my goal right now is insane, as people have told me. My goal is to get the album out for Christmas of 2010. Um, what's nice about the music industry now, which is, is less than three months from now, um, what's nice about the music business now is people are also doing something called EPs. So I, I have the option of releasing half of it now and half of it in a, in a small chunk of time thereafter. Um, my goal is to spend another year focusing on Latin America and then move on to Asia and do, you know, two years in Asia. Basically, it seems to take one year to get your legs in the market, to start building your presence, um, to start getting to know the artist, and then a year to really let it blossom, um, you know, in terms of producing that album and letting, you know, promoting that album. And then to move to the Middle East um, and then to move to Africa. The wild card in all of this is I'm really getting itchy to do the U.S., um, now that microfinance is starting to be a little bit of a hot topic, um, American microfinance, I should say, I'm getting a little eager to start doing more of a crossover between the foreign cultures and what's going on in the U.S. to really work that crossover element. So I, I could get a little distracted and start doing some of that at the same time. Um, in fact, I might try to build that into, um, into the Latin effort itself right now. For our listeners, and many of them, of course, are business executives or educators and certainly influencers and leaders, academics, etc., how can they learn more? How can they get involved? How can they support you by spreading the word or providing support? What can they do? What options are available to our listeners? What what I think is really nice about the way things are unfolding for us is it's it's there's a huge range of what people can do and all of it is a huge help. They can do something as simple as go to the website www.hopesings.net and purchase our single. Um, you know, our vision at this point is that um, of every dollar that we have in our budget, our goal is that 50% will go to our microfinance partners, 40% will go to our microfinance music, musical partners for musical production, and 10% will go to overhead, which is really lean, as anybody who's in this world knows. Um, 
that's the first thing they can do. Go and buy the song. It's a beautiful song. Um, shortly, they'll be able to go to the website and buy the album as well or become a subscriber to our uh, monthly or annual service. Um, certainly, another thing they can do if they really like what we're up to is they can function on a grassroots level. They can, they can put it up on their Facebook. They can tweet about it. Um, they can tell their friends about it. I ask anybody who likes what we do, tell five friends. Tell five friends, because this is grassroots. This is bottom-up. Um, another thing people can do, which I don't think most people are aware of, is tell me which artists you love. Um, tell me who you think deserves attention. Send me people's names. Send me songs. Send me your songs. I have a relationship with Berkeley, University, Berkeley School of Music rather in Boston, and I've got 15 songs from current or recent graduates of Berkeley that I want to try to make available for listening. Um, a big thing people can do is realize that this is a really powerful message for the right company or right individual entrepreneur to be aligned with. Um, we need to do video. This is a video age, and that's way beyond our budget at this point. But I think um, for the right partner, this is a wonderful message for them to, to be aligned with, whether it's they want to talk to... Hispanics in the U.S., Hispanics abroad, um, women, um, whether they want to talk to, you know, the current microfinance people, whether they're financial institutions who want to burnish their image, whether they're um, a Walmart who wants to, you know, reach out and build their market there, and Avon, who has thousands of women use microloans to become Avon ladies. I think that there are endless opportunities for this to be a wonderful um, partnership with a corporation, whether it's a you know two-person operation or a two-thousand-person operation. The purchase of the song that you mentioned earlier, that they can do easily on the website using yep. their credit card or PayPal, right? Yep, it goes through iTunes. We have distribution at 168, you know, uh, digital outlets around the world. iTunes, Rhapsody, you name it, we're there. Amazon. You have, in a very short amount of time, put together a new company and developed a very ambitious plan of action <laughs> to reach millions of people, potentially. What insights, Beth, would you share with our listeners on ways that they can be more effective in their efforts to reach out, or maybe say three tips that you might share with our audience four ways to leverage their outreach and be more effective that way? Um, I think the first thing um, that you can do from, from a very personal point of view is be out in the world as much as you can with your passion. Um, be your evangelist. Um, part of my mission um, is just to meet as many people as I can and spread the word of what we're up to. Um, I am not a shy person, and I think some people who, um, you know, who build businesses do it because they're just into the business themselves, but it's look outward. I would say look outward and find other people to help because it's your, your passion multiplied by others that will make it really thrive. Um, a second thing that's really brass tacks and basic – I survive on interns. Um, we have um, 
very little capital at this point um, to pay anybody. The outpouring of um, help that I received from interns through Columbia, through Berkeley, through various microfinance institutions, through colleges is amazing to me. Um, and they're a real amazing, they're an amazing asset because they, these kids know how to do the social media. These kids know how to do Facebook and Twitter and Reverb Nation and all the things that are crucial for building your young market. Um, and it's a real opportunity also for you to mentor somebody. Um, it's a real, real two-way street. Um, and the third thing I would say is, um, and this I think is maybe the hardest, is to be really quiet and listen to what, what you need and what you want and not to get overwhelmed. There is so much possibility in the world. It's hard to just make your priorities and stick with them and say, I'm going to go with this, I'm going to go with this, I'm going to go with this. You just have to pull back on a daily basis, almost on an hourly basis sometimes and go, okay, what's the smartest use of my resources right now? What's the smartest use of my energy where is my ideal client? Um, what's my ideal message? Um, it's easy to be busy, but not effective. Um, connect with the world about your, about your mission, your project, your product. I would say use the resources, use interns, um, use them to help build your business, and use yourself. Use your inner guidance system to be making the smartest choices um, that make the easiest choices for you. Thank you, Beth, for joining us from Manhattan, New York. Thank you, Elena, so much for having me. This was a pleasure. Um, I loved being able to share with you what we're up to, um, and I hope it's helping people who are listening. Well, we're going to try to spread the word through our listeners, and uh, maybe in a few months or in a year, you can come back and tell us about your album and how the project is progressing. I'd love that. Thank you so much. And to our audience, thank you for listening to Beth Blatt, who is the founder and chief executive officer of Hope Sings. Today we discussed microfinance and her organization. Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the HispanicNPR.com website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly at editor at HispanicNPR.com. That's editor at hispanicmpr.com.